This is the story of Laritza de Vercent Cambra, a human rights lawyer who had no choice but to leave the country she loves. There's a myth about Cuba that the government has created, an image of a perfect country. Only people who live in Cuba for more than three months in a marginal neighborhood will get to know the real Cuba. But this other side is kept hidden by the state, so not everyone will see it. But the ones who do will become aware that no one should envy us. Not for the healthcare, not for education. They didn't allow me to say what I think. They don't allow me to express myself. So it isn't education, it's indoctrination. In 2017, Amnesty International interviewed ordinary people who had left Cuba and reached Mexico. We asked them why they decided to leave and recorded their testimonies. This second episode of Cuban Lives is a little different because unlike the thousands of Cubans who traveled overland from Guyana to reach the States or Mexico, Laritza was granted refugee status in the United States. I miss it a lot. The relationships that we built among all of us. We made ourselves strong. I haven't found a place that feels like my own in this country. It's different here. My name is Laritza Diversen Cambra. I'm 37 years old. I graduated as a lawyer in Cuba in 2008. In 2010, I decided to found Cubalex in collaboration with two other lawyers. In the beginning, it was, it was through word of mouth. We received letters every day of the week, about 25, 30 letters per day, of people asking us to take action to solve their problems, people who didn't have access to a lawyer. We formed a team and we worked for six years. We didn't do protests, which are repressed by the state. We kept a low profile. We didn't speak about political issues at all. We weren't against the government. But if an official was breaking the law, we responded to this. We, we would ask him to look at the laws of the country and we'd ask him to review his actions as an employee of the state. Cuban criminal law sanctions so-called illicit associations, meetings or demonstrations of groups not legally registered. It's called the Law and Associations, which requires registration with the Ministry of Justice. But the Ministry routinely denies registration or just doesn't respond to the applicants. This means that the work of human rights organisations is effectively prohibited. At first, things were calm. But in 2012, it started to get tense when we presented a report to an international newspaper on the human rights situation in Cuba and we started to collaborate with the United Nations. That's when the state got upset. We researched to what extent the state was complying with the law, and after that, the repression started. They tried to smear us online, saying that we were using the money of North American contributors for our own personal benefit. It felt like an insult to me that I had to find a way to get cooking oil because in the shops the prices were too high. I worked and my husband had his salary, but it wasn't enough for our needs. We had to buy things on the black market. 
because it was much cheaper there and there was no other way. It was a hypocrisy that I, as a judge, had to convict people that in other circumstances I was buying things from. So I had to send my family members to buy them. That's when I noticed the difference, that the law is one thing and the reality is something else. Everyone has their own concept of happiness. I think that Cuba would be a place to be happy, but unfortunately, it's impossible now. There's no way to have personal projects that can make you feel fully satisfied in a country like Cuba, where there's control, where the authorities and other people can have control over your life. You can't even dream about what you want, and it's very difficult to be happy in a country like that. This reality has to change at some point. By 2016, the team had grown to 22 people. We were working with international organizations and also doing an analysis on the electoral system in Cuba. On the 14th of March, 2016, we submitted three reform proposals to Congress to modify the election law. We had offices in various places and the state started to intercept the lawyers in Havana and Camagüey. They took documents away from me several times. We started to report them for taking our documents. We went to court and filed a complaint about everything that was happening. We didn't leave any action against any member of Kubalex unaccounted for. The state generally only lets semi-skilled or unskilled workers register as self-employed. That means that most other professions, and that includes lawyers, are unable to work in the private sector. So, human rights defenders and lawyers who do carry out human rights activities do so at very great risk. And also because they can't register, they then have to operate out of their homes. It was September 23rd when they came to the office. We didn't expect it. Usually we open from Monday to Friday, but someone in the neighborhood informed us that there was an operation going on and that it was almost for certain that it was for us. So we closed the office in my home and we locked ourselves in. At 10 a.m., a surveillance team appeared with a search warrant. I didn't accept it because we didn't comply with the legal requirements. I told them that they would be violating my rights by entering my residence because the search warrant was illegal. But they broke the door of the entrance and of the kitchen where we were all at the back. There was no point resisting anymore. I had to watch that they sat in my chair and my desk. Then they made me go into my own office and forced me to get undressed and to sit crouched down. They came in at noon, and they stayed until 11 at night. They took all the equipment away. They searched the entire place and left us without money, without phone, without anything. Supposedly, they had received complaints about illegal economic activities. <laughs> I told them that we didn't charge for the service that we provided, that it was completely for free. We didn't work outside of the office. We gave the people the resources, but they had to submit their cases themselves. We just gave them advice. Our team had the strict rule to charge absolutely nothing, and we would not take absolutely anything from the office, because otherwise, things could be misinterpreted. This rule was very clear to all of us. They didn't see it this way, and they took everyone's documents, and they interrogated all of us. They asked us how much Kuvalex charged. 
They put suggestive words into their questions. 60% of the people that we helped were people in prison. And what we didn't realize was that the people that we helped had been forced by the state to say that we did receive some kind of financial benefit for the work. They had no choice. We felt so defenseless. We couldn't do anything. All we could do to protect ourselves was to file a complaint at international level. Those months were hard. We were afraid. State control has a big impact. Sure, it's a country with free education and free healthcare, but then explain why millions of Cubans are dreaming about leaving the country wherever and however they can to be in a refugee shelter in bad conditions. And why, when the country is so beautiful, have so many Cubans left and many continue to live and many continue to dream about it? Some of the world doesn't even know that Cuba exists. They don't care about what happens in Cuba at all. And there are others that think that there's free education and free healthcare in Cuba. But that's not true at all. Because it isn't education if you're not allowed to express yourself. You'll never be educated if they control what you should and you shouldn't know. When you try to stick your head out, you're pushed down. And what happens to you will be used as an example so that everyone can see that they can't do it. I liked my work and what I did, but I didn't know if I could continue doing what I was doing. There were two things that they could do to me. Firstly, send me to prison. And I have a son. It was very likely that they would also target my son. He wasn't safe. And that hurt me a lot. I felt very guilty that something might happen to him. I took a look at my situation and started to plan my strategy. We submitted our case to the Inter-American Commission and to the United Nations. We didn't stop. The state wanted to apply Law 88 for protection of national independence and the economy of Cuba. That's why they took our equipment, because they were looking for evidence that we had received funds from an international partner. We had always had the doors to our office open, but after that day, we had them closed constantly, and only members of the Kuvalex team were allowed in. Do I think infiltrators are working in Cuba? Ooh. That's a suspicion I always had, and more so after they raided the office. I had a security camera inside of the office uh, because we'd had a robbery in March 2015. So we were able to verify that one of the people who was working in Kuvalex had taken a document that we were going to distribute to different organizations. It was uh, the report about freedom of expression that we presented to the United Nations. He had been in the office for less than two months, only a short time. But if it hadn't been him, it would have been someone else. It's a factor that you always have to take into account in Cuba. So yeah, they did it through an infiltrator. Everyone in Cuba has these suspicions, this distrust. It's every man for himself. The fear within my team increased. They also had the same fears as me because they had young children. And as I was the boss, I had to think about what I could do to protect both me and the others. So that's what I did. 
I went to the US Embassy and I told them that I wanted to request asylum for the entire team of Kubalex because we wanted to continue to do our work. At that time, we were 16 people. Later, there were less because some decided not to do it. They didn't want to leave their families behind. The group started to leave Cuba in October 2016. Cuba has a perfect system of social control. It has changed in the past few years, but it isn't because the state wanted to make concessions. The politicians don't want any change. But there are things that can be stopped. People can travel now. After 40 years of prohibiting you to leave, at some moment, it just can't be stopped anymore. People can use the internet now, not because the state has been good, but because it couldn't be stopped anymore. But every one of the changes has been accompanied by some measure so that the politicians won't lose their power. This country has very poor economic development and it has a supposedly private sector, though I would not consider it that. Independent workers can make choices and make their businesses thrive. The state doesn't want the Cubans to progress, to think, to participate in political decisions in the group that has power. It will stay the same. Perhaps a little change of the image, but that's all. In Cuba, everything functions with hierarchy, a military mentality where you have to do what the boss tells you to do. I'm living in Memphis now and Cuba is registered. We've been working for several months now, focusing on the violation of human rights in Cuba. We're focusing on vulnerable groups and looking at how harassment impacts people. We work with several activists and run courses. We hope that Cuba will change. That's our dream, and until it happens, we will continue our work. If these aren't the circumstances that we wish for our country, <laughs> I wish the situation was different. Uh, I, I miss my home a lot. I, I miss everything. <laughs> Mostly my home. I, I remember how we worked together as a team. We were like a family. In, in the morning, we would sit together. We had the same risks, the same fears. We, we protected each other. We understood each other. I have to believe I will be able to return one day. Otherwise, I would be saying that the government would stay there forever. <laughs> so yeah, I will return. And I will continue my work. And if they have a problem with it, Still, I will continue, and they can continue to have a problem with it because I will try to help people. And I do think that Cuba will change <laughs> because I'm an optimist. <laughs> I don't know when, but that's not important. I will continue to do my part so that it can happen. You've been listening to Ledica's story, part of the Cuban Live series for Amnesty International. Thank you for listening. 